0: and welcome to another episode of Compare and Campaign. I am your host, as always, Tom Lando, and with me, as always, is my co-host and co-guide... McGill. I got it right this time. Um, it is the 3rd of October, 2023, and this is episode one hundred and sixty. Oh, jeez. Which are we on now?
1: Is it Do you one, know? Is it 164? Yeah. Is it? Yeah.
0: Man. It's uh, a lot of episodes.
1: <laughs> Where does the time go?
0: Man. And, uh... I don't know, McGill, uh, how, how are you doing? Are you got anything... To special to talk about this episode or are we just going back through the gates?
1: Uh, I don't know about anything special but it's October. It's that spooky season and uh, I've I've already started my annual tradition where I try to watch 50 horror movies that I've never seen before over the course of the month of October. I almost never succeed in watching all 50 in October. I usually end up overflowing into november but i've started that so horror movies abound in my life and and i'm just i'm looking forward to having a an october filled with all the all that spooky goodness i'm even planning on running some sort of you know spooky adventures for the DD campaigns i have going on in celebration of the the halloween season
0: uh my sister saw socks
1: Socks. Oh, socks. <laughs> socks.
0: Yeah, she kept saying it to me, and I kept falling for it and being like, "What the heck?" and then being like, "Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah." Saw X. Uh, yeah. Apparently enjoyed it, but I've I've
1: actually she- been hearing that against all odds, it's a pretty good movie, and uh, I actually, in anticipation of this watched all the other saw movies saws one through eight and then spiral from the book of saw which i think is probably the worst of them the one starring chris rock of all people weird weird choice for a saw movie um yeah and uh, i gotta say there are all pretty bad <laughs> the first saw movie has a it's like good like a as an indie movie with a, a sort of a low budget premise that they make the most of but man that series just starts sinking very very quickly after that first film and even the first film i would say has not aged especially well it looks it looks like an early 2000s horror movie So I'm surprised to hear that people are quite positive on Saw Part 10 of all of them, considering just how bad I think the majority of those movies are.
0: Yeah, my sister definitely has a fondness for them, but I'm not sure how much of that is, like, ironic, you know... Well, the
1: problem I wound up with as I was going through the series is, like, I don't even think they're very fun to watch as bad movies. Like, they, they're just kind of, like, they got a real nasty attitude to them. Everything's grimy and, like, badly lit. Everything just, like, looks ugly on a visual level. And then the main set pieces are just watching people going, ah, ah, as machines twist their limbs and snap their body parts. I don't know. It doesn't really appeal. But uh, all that's you know, I say it doesn't really appeal. I still watched all friggin' nine movies, and I'm gonna watch... Saw Part Ten like a sucker.
0: Um, you know, I think that in in thinking about what my sister enjoys about these films, you were you were saying these various qualities of the film. Um, I think it says a lot that my sister also has a great fondness for uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, it's I'm just like sure, I'm pretty sure at one point was hurt to say haha yeah it was awesome when he murdered all those kids
1: so your sister's just a big fan of like murder factory movies
0: yeah i think that might be the that might be the connective tissue here saw might might just be kind of an insane kind of uh willy wonka exercise which like i don't know i think that's like a big draw of them is like the very absurdity of the sort of moral judgment at the core of Saw.
1: But see, I almost think that a, a better series that, that has a, a kind of a similar vibe to it, to me anyway, is uh, the Final Destination movies. I think the Final Destination movies are a lot more fun, and they have all sorts of crazy, like, they're not intentionally assembled, like, traps and machines, but all the deaths in that are, are those movies are these crazy like Rube Goldberg, you know, like a coin falls out of someone's pocket and it hits, you know, so, it hits a, something that flips over and knocks the ball that runs down a gutter and then hits, you know, something that, that triggers an explosion. Uh, I, I kind of feel like those are at least a bit more creative than just like, I'm going to put you in a machine and it's going to... It's gonna cause you pain until you die unless you cause yourself pain in some slightly less bad way. But you know what occurs to me is uh, it would actually be pretty fun to do like a Saw D&D adventure where the players they wake up they don't know how they got where they are and there's, you know, the, the villain is like, ah, oh, welcome to my game. Ha ha ha. You have to pass these various trials to continue. And then you can just get creative with the, the traps. Have them do a, a real trap themed dungeon crawl and maybe put a, a sadistic puppet master twist to it. That could be something.
0: Yeah, now I'm just thinking of the Rick and Morty episode where they end up in the crazy saw traps because of Rick drunkenly doing it the night before, and uh, that's the twist that I like, is like, it was you! You put yourself in the trap, you idiot!
1: (laughs) (laughs) Man, I don't know if I've seen that episode. It's been a long time since I've watched Rick and Morty.
0: That's the first one, the the one... uh... Yeah, you probably you've probably seen it. It's just uh, the way I described it because it's the one with like the Avengers style team.
1: Oh yeah. I okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I do remember that. Mostly, I just remember Ghost Train, who can summon ghost trains.
0: Yeah. Exactly.
1: I forgot um, all about the the saw traps.
0: <laughs> yeah. The fat they they get there to fight the bad guy, and it turns out that Rick's already killed the bad guy, and is instead filled the place with dumb traps that are meant to like that are meant to make fun of the superhero team basically, but then they're also trapped inside of it because of his own drunken negligence like like yeah, that he sounds is simultaneously right. <laughs> He's simultaneously in the traps with them and the villain that put them in the traps.
1: Well, if you got the right character in your party, you could pull that too.
0: <laughs> Maybe. man, it's an idea. Um, man, uh, yeah, so I guess on my side of things, I guess, uh, just for my own thing, you know what, I've been, I've been trying to watch, uh, I was like, you know, I should really get on and, and, and watch some of this because I think a lot of my friends watch or... It's just like it's always sort of around me. Certainly like on YouTube in clip form is bits of Dimension 20. Do you know Dimension 20?
1: Yeah, I was just reading about Dimension 20 recently, but I don't really follow it at all.
0: Yeah, so I was thinking like I keep seeing clips and stuff, but it's always like kind of out of context for me. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to go back to the beginning. I'm going to educate myself. I'm going to watch this nonsense or at least listen to it. Um and uh you know, it's funny because I think I think watching it I've I've like talked about uh I I had a grumpy episode at one point about something I'd seen in a clip from uh Dimension Twenty. But I think generally I'm just a grump about it. I think I think it's not that. It's that there is like a bitterness in me i think that i have to watch out for that is like a jealousy of dnd celebrities because it's like oh man how come they get to do that and i don't get to do that oh
1: yes we have but, talked about this
0: yeah yeah exactly and like i don't know watching it now uh i don't know i think it's also like it's a very uh it's a big project that they're undertaking and so like I don't want to sort of be criticizing it from the side when in fact like I can tell just like in the short amount that I've watched in sequence it's like man there's a there's a ton that goes into making it um yeah I don't know I've just been sort of like I think to some to some extent I am like Confronting my own grumpness about the whole thing is, I'm like, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna try and watch this and get into it, and uh, you know, the another big thing is like seeing it and watching it is like, it's definitely a cool thing, but it's like, is it really what I want for myself? Is like particularly, I find the groups are like much larger than the groups that I would like to run with, and so it's the sort of thing where it's like. I, I am aware of that like bitter jealousy within myself and I don't even think it's rational because I don't even think that this is like actually what my what I aspire to with my D&D or my role playing. Um, but yeah, all that to say, I'm like, I don't know, I'm I'm more inclined to look back on my previous statements about this sort of thing and be like, ah, you grump. But uh that's something I have mentioned before. It's just like, you know, I thought I'd touch on it again just because it's been on my mind since I've been revisiting the series.
1: I, I see no problem with being a grump about that stuff, Tom. Yeah. No? No, I mean <laughs> uh, why why is it why is it a problem?
0: I don't know. It's uh I don't I don't want to be Making judgments more on an irrational, bitter jealousy that I just described, rather than, you know, um, oh, you
1: mean like a like more of a problem for you? Uh, like is you're you're revising your statements and and saying you know I was just being a grump before. I'm saying it's okay to be a grump. I see no problem with that. But do you mean like you don't want to be a grump? For your, for the sake of your own internal well being, or is it more that you don't want to be a grump because you don't want to slag off someone else's work?
0: I think more the second one.
1: Okay, well, so if what I I'm saying, what I'm saying is, I think, I mean, obviously, if you're just being a bitter grump about it, maybe that criticism doesn't have a lot of merit. But uh, I follow this guy uh, Nando V movies on YouTube. His whole thing is on his channel, uh, he does like fan casting of potential uh, superhero movies, like he's saying, if we make a new Fantastic Four movie, who would I cast as the Fantastic Four? And he sort of ranks his picks and look at, looks at actors who are under consideration. Those kinds of videos. But he also used to do these videos called One Small Change, where he would be like, you know, if I was in charge of writing, you know, one of these Marvel movies, Here's the one small thing that I would change that I think would make a big difference and make the movie a bit better. And he stopped doing those uh, because he said that he wanted, really he just wanted his channel to have more positivity to it. Be less about like saying, you know, this could be better and I could do it better. And more about like, well, what if, you know, Adam Driver played Mr. Fantastic or something like that. But in this video where he talks about no longer doing one small change videos, he does say... That he thinks that there is a real validity to criticism of you know other like other media being like oh man I don't think this is very good and we should be allowed to have those differences of opinion and so I, I kind of feel Tom like like some part of it uh, from the the impression I've gotten from you is that when you look at these sort of quote unquote celebrity D&D players you really like you scoff and you're like uh you know Ugh, I don't like this and uh some it seems to me like some part of that might be rooted in just you feeling like D&D isn't really a thing that should have celebrity players or celebrity DMs uh, am I off the mark in stating that
0: I think that's I think that's true but like that's not a reason to be grumpy about people who are celebrity DD players
1: well i mean as long as it's not personal as long as you're not like that person's an asshole i i feel like it's totally fine to hold the opinion and be like ugh you know show like critical role why bother we should you know shows like that for D D shouldn't even be a thing i think that's a totally valid opinion not harmful at all maybe a bit grumpy but as long as it's not some personal attack against them i don't see any problem with with feeling that way
0: my sister said that there was a thing at Socks about how they were going to play a critical role live show in theaters. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. You ever hear anything about that? No. It's like a That's a... Nothing to do with your time.
1: That's it's an interesting thing. But I mean, I don't know. Adventure Zone does live shows. Is that is that, yeah. that much different? I'm just paying to watch people play D&D.
0: Yeah, no, uh, I I guess it's just the, the idea of having it uh, played to theaters is like,
1: yeah, it's, it's, in, to me. it's depressing or surprising,
0: surprising, surprising, <laughs> did not say depressing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but again, I, I genuinely feel that's valid. I, I don't want to lose the grumpy Tom. Grumpy Tom is like the oh man, the spice that occasionally gets sprinkled on top of our podcast.
0: All right, that's that's a fair that's a fair statement, I suppose. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, you know, it, so this is something also a separate topic, but something that we talked about on the podcast way back when we did our Caltrop Core episode, um, where I talked about the games that I was the different games that I was developing with Caltrop Core. This is exciting. Yeah, I went ahead and I released Ceremonian Shadow on Itch. Um, I don't know that it was... I don't know that there's been a ton added to it since I last worked on it. The thing is, and it's funny because I revisited our episode about Caltrop Core and you read off the thing at the end of Caltrop Core, but it's like... I very much ended up in a space where I started doing the thing that it literally advises in the Caltrop Core rules which is like just do it, just make it. Like don't don't question don't second guess yourself. Like there was a large part of me that is like, "Oh, this could be better. Um, I like is this ready for release yet? I should make it better before I release it." And in the end, I was like, you know what? No, I'm tired. I if I keep thinking like that, I'm never gonna release it. And so I just, I I took what I had and I just put it all up on itch. And I don't. The the trick is though that I'm not in like a huge headspace where I'm like thinking about that game a lot or anything. So I'm not sure I could like say anything special about it beyond what I started with. Like like I'm I'm just my head's not really in that game. It's just that I had that game floating around that I had done to a certain degree. And I was like, man, it's just sitting here. I should really just put it out there. And like, I, I emailed the person who created Caltrop core and that's like, they responded being like, yeah, that's exactly the idea is like, just put it up. And if you get an idea to make it better, like just change it and then update the itch page. Like that's what I did. So,
1: that's great that you got a response from the creator of caltrop core did they look at ceremony and shadow at all or did they just respond to you saying like just wanted to get it out there
0: yeah they they i mean they they said you know thanks for mentioning it and everything and whatnot but um i I don't think, like, I didn't get the sense they had gone through the game themselves because they didn't mention anything about the, the game itself.
1: Well, we should promote this. This is an RPG from one of the hosts of Comparing Campaign, now available uh, for purchase on Itch. Name your own price. And uh, the URL is tlando.itch.io T-L-A-N-D-O dot dot slash ceremony hyphen in hyphen shadow. Um, Someone...
0: Someone bought it for six dollars. It
1: it's fantastic, Tom.
0: What the fuck? That's it great. Been, it might have been Titanomachy themselves.
1: I mean, I think this is pretty fantastic. Can you give a a couple sentence pitch uh, to remind the listeners of what Ceremony and Shadow is?
0: Yeah. Uh, so, Ceremony and Shadow is a TTRPG based on the Caltrop core system in which occultists gather forbidden knowledge to survive in a dying world. Um, this is the game. It's like, uh, you are in a world that is like reality is disintegrating. It's a dark world where, uh, people sort of exist in, in tribes that like eke out survival amidst like great terror and mystery. And uh, you, the players, are occultists who delve into the secret and forbidden lore of the past to try and uh, grant yourself the power necessary to lead your tribe to survival, but um, danger lurks around any corner, and the more, like, the more occult lore that you accumulate, the more dangerous it is that you will be overcome by corruption
1: setting uh seems evocative of stuff like like call of cthulhu maybe or or uh, maybe ravenloft i'm getting some ravenloft vibes certainly from the art you've got on the page
0: yeah that's all courtesy of grant
1: our buddy grant current yeah, just... current teeth player uh has played in some of our other games as well long time yeah, grant... friend of the show
0: Grant just made the one picture at some point, and I had that sitting around, and then when I decided I was like, you know what, I'm just gonna put it up, and uh, so I grabbed that art, and I threw it on They He made me a banner. It was great. He did all for free, too. So. Stand-up
1: guy, that Grant.
0: Yeah. Um, but yeah, again, I'm like, I'm not hugely in the headspace of this game, even talking about like I know what the deal is with the game but I don't know it's not like I'm super thrilled about it at the moment because it's not it's not new to me that it doesn't have the novelty and I'm also like not playing it or anything so I'm just like well I just have this game and I thought I'd put it up but um yeah it's a sort of spooky game where everything is sort of like uh, fading into shadow and you're desperately trying to keep yourself and your tribe alive um, while uh, digging up forbidden secrets
1: heck yeah and again tlando.itch.io slash ceremony and so, shadow with dashes between the workers
0: oh yeah check that
1: ceremony-in-shadow dash dash
0: well there you have it McGill's got me covered um, otherwise I don't know if I got too much to say I've just got my, my side of Coyote's Ages but you know even even my side of the podcast with Coyote's Ages so this 5e campaign I'm still telling the story we left off they had been gathering allies for the upcoming assault on Ashgrain Outpost, um, but then one potential ally they ended up turning into an enemy uh, when Hexaquila uh, had some some fighting words with uh, the Death Priestess Jada Ishir. Um, the thing is, so basically now because of uh, because of Hex saying like. Maybe we'll kill you guys after uh, when they wouldn't agree to be allies. And now that they're fighting, like, we're kind of just in this big fight. And, like, most of the next session, like, far and away, most of the next session that I ran was almost entirely just this fight with the Drow death cultists. And I feel like, I don't know, like, like, the narrative is pretty... Is pretty cool, I think, but I, I don't know that it makes for, like, really riveting podcast content. Is like, it's all just sort of one fight, you know?
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, this is a topic that I have discussed many times on the show, uh, and, and sort of a perfect example of it in practice in our podcast, which is the conundrum of making sure that combat— in an RPG, isn't boring to sit by and listen to. As you said, you know, it's it's tricky. Does it make for good listening?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I think it, did, it I think it made for good playing. I think we were all pretty into the combat, but then, like, telling that story, I don't think that there's too much worth going into. Like, you know, we we got this. The, the narrative that I create, you know, uh, they're in combat with the undead drow death priestess Jada and her minions, three drow warriors and acolyte currently protected by sanctuary cast by Jada and a single remaining skeleton that had its face smashed by Connor's spirit shovel. The acolyte has blessed the warriors and the warriors have cast darkness to obscure much of the combat. Little do they know this benefits Connor more than it does them. Jade has been hit several times already, but she's clearly supernaturally resilient. The death priestess barks a profane syllable, and a skeletal hand composed of shadow erupts from the loose soil beneath you, brandishing a sinister black sword. The shadowy appendage flickers away, but the sword remains hovering in the air, absorbing the darkness of the hand that lifted it. The blade spins in the air, swiping at sex- hexaquila. Oh, sexquila. <laughs> Surprise um, that
1: joke hasn't been made already.
0: Yeah, it hasn't happened. Uh, the blade barely grazes his scaly hide. Uh, Jada disengages from the melee in the darkness, rolling backwards and then darting toward Gent with predatory speed. The skeleton, recently struck in the face by Connor's spirit weapon, stumbles back into the space between Connor and Hexakila. Fighting blind, the undead minion swings its as ashi haphazardly in Hexakila's direction. Uh, the stumbling skeleton gets a lucky strike in critical hit. Connor shouts, this land belongs to the darkness no longer, and cast Dawn. Uh, this is a bit funny, though, because Connor throws up the spell Dawn and is in the area of it, immediately hits himself and drops concentration on Dawn. So really, he summons the Dawn for, like, a flash and then it disappears, because he hit himself and he lost concentration. <laughs> uh... The shadowy spirit blade of the Death Priest seems to shelter the skeleton in its shadow, just barely protecting it from total annihilation. The acolyte cries out, but the warriors hold firm, some of them raising an arm to shield their eyes while one focuses on Hexaquila. Connor uses the sudden flash to sneak a quick shovel to the back of the skeleton's head, just enough to knock the skeleton face-first into loose soil. Um... So yeah, like it—it it just keeps going, you know. Gent uh, goes with the pew pew pew, shooting the uh, the their new oath bow at death priestess Jada, who they've marked as their uh, target with the oath bow. Um, but it's a pretty—it's like a long, uh, it's it's a pretty long combat. Like it takes them a long time. To beat Jada, and then to beat the Warriors, and then beat, uh, the Acolyte, even. Um, at one point, Jada locks eyes with Hex, outstretches a twisting finger, and hisses, Arbanak Connor can hear the magic word and identifies the spell as banishment. So, uh, Hex gets, uh, banished from the fight, which, of course, slows things down since he's their big heavy hitter. Um... But yeah, I don't know, like, it's kind of just all this to say it's just a big fight with Drow, you know? Is there anything particular you want to know about this fight or anything, like, that you think would be of particular interest?
1: How many Drow are we talking about?
0: We are talking about, uh, so, I'm not sure. When it started off, I'm not exactly sure, but when we're talking now, we've got Jada her acolyte and three warriors. And then there's the skeleton. There were probably more skeletons to begin with.
1: And is this like how this combat lasted a whole session?
0: Almost most of a session.
1: Right on. Okay. Um, I don't know, man. I mean, you know, my, my ongoing thing with combat, like how do you, how do you keep it flowing? How do you keep your players engaged? Especially at higher levels when it's a long combat and you know one turn a lot can happen in a single turn so i don't know you said like uh, who was it connor was banished
0: no hex got banished
1: hex got banished so like what's hex doing while that's happening just like sitting back
0: well How do you keep we have that the player advantage engaged? here <laughs> we have the advantage here that alex is playing two characters Right, um, right. He's so when he's not playing Hex, he could actually focus on Connor. So it's actually kind of a good thing for him. But that is a good question is like, man, banishment is tough. Even though it's one of my sp- favorite spells, it's like, it is a thing where, like, I guess the trick is, is like, be very sparing in how often you use banishment against a player. But let players use banishment all the time. that's what I'd say.
1: that's fair uh i a recent game that I was running, there was a combat where I used a spell that that again just sort of like removed a player from the combat until they could save against it. It was hold person in my case. but oh yeah, I just think like, I don't know it there's a a real risk. Employing any of those spells that remove a player from combat Uh, And the problem is that there are so many of them like it's not just banishment. It is stuff like hold person Uh, One of the players in my game the the bad guy did hold person on them And then they just kept on failing their saving throw to get out of it Even though the DC was only ten I was like the DC's ten, you know, they'll be in for maybe a turn or two They wound up being held for a good long while and missing at least like three turns
0: you would of course like you want to keep in mind that saving from the spell is not the only way to break that spell you can also break the concentration of the person who Mm -hmm. cast it that's that's what they do to jada in this fight
1: or another Uh, spell that i'm thinking of is like maze you know, suddenly yeah. suddenly the player is in a magical maze and they're just kind of stuck there until the spell ends.
0: I do think, though, that the concentration element of it adds a certain thing of, like, at least in in my experience, when you're at the table, if you've been banished but you're depending on your teammates to, like, get that hit in on the person who cast the banishment and, like, try and break their concentration, it does... a it it does have a certain element of like, oh man, are they gonna break concentration? Like you're really like mm-hmm. kind of on the edge of your seat watching for it.
1: Yeah, true enough. Um, I guess I guess the bottom line for me is just like any of those spells. There's such a, a careful line to walk because there's always that potential. Like you know, player keeps failing their save. Uh, And then the other player keeps missing the the caster uh, and not landing a hit. So those things just go on and on. I guess my inclination is if it goes on a little too long I just have something dramatic happen like the the player who was the subject of the whole person they get incapacitated and the spell ends and then the combat can move on but someone can revive them and they're no longer like restricted from re-entering combat. But I don't know. Uh, th- when you say, like, full session combat, immediately my, my red flag goes up and I'm like, but how do you keep it interesting? How do you keep it interesting?
0: Midway through this fight, I tried the plant-based KFC sandwich for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> I was sort of including notes about it in the brackets. Um, how was it? Says well it says here uh, it's no big crunch but it's not bad KFC spicy mayo still rules good to know we can still get a decent fried chicken sandwich if all the aminals go extend
1: (laughs) Um, I you know I I recently was reading up on uh, the the soy jack chicken sandwich meme (laughs) do you know what that is no. The, the 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 soy the two soy jacks pointing.
0: Oh yeah. Uh, what about it?
1: These guys. You know that meme?
0: Oh yeah, 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 those guys.
1: So I was like I was like what is the origin of that meme? Uh, out of curiosity recently and uh, to tie it back in uh, the origin is it was plant-based KFC nice (laughs) it's these two guys these two uh, I guess vegan guys the soy boys (laughs) pointing out the beyond fried chicken at KFC
0: (laughs) Well, that's exciting. Yeah, real um, exciting. But is
1: it more exciting than the combat you're describing?
0: I mean, uh, I figure that we can basically skip ahead, I think. Sure. Right? <laughs> like. <laughs>
1: yep. Unless, unless we want more uh, KFC
0: sandwich review. No, well, really what you'd be getting is more... Um, more combat, narrative combat description, you know? a mm-hmm. grazing blast of Buckshot to the face shears off the faceplate mask of the Drow's helmet, revealing a twisted and bloody visage. The acolyte suddenly sprints over to stand just behind the Drow warrior with the busted helmet. She maintains her defensive stance while partially concealed in magical shadow. The remaining Drow warrior grunts, throwing himself towards Hexakila with two desperate swipes of his wakizashi. Um etc etc i guess one thing that's the neat uh to note is like so after they beat them they're like let's check the bodies quick look in at the cabinet and get the hell out of here we got regrouped with the military and uh so i go through their they go through their stuff we got uh on their bodies we got the death priestess has loose gray drow clothing a chain armor and an unidentified symbol with a skull surrounded by a swirl of blood droplets. You know who that's the what that's the symbol for or who that's the symbol for?
1: Repeat that symbol. It's It's
0: a skull surrounded by a swirl of blood, blood droplets. droplets.
1: No, who's that this I was uh,
0: Iron Maiden? No. <laughs> it's Ball from Baldur's Gate. Oh, cool. See that symbol all the time in Baldur's Gate. At least the first two. Yeah, man, I, I gotta, know, yeah, still
1: got to play that third one.
0: But yeah, uh, yeah, Acolyte has pretty much the same stuff and a scimitar. The warriors have uh, bone and drow leather splint armor, wakizashis, and blow guns, along with a supply of darts to each of them. So this is basically one thing I want to shout out is like, one thing I had for the flavor of these guys is I had them armed with blowguns and wakizashis. It's just something to say about them, something to make them a bit different.
1: So, what are, like, the big revelations of this combat? This can't just—if it's a combat this big, it can't just be an obstacle, right? there is there a takeaway at the end of it?
0: I mean— Uh, theoretically they could have had these forces on their side in ash grain outpost but instead they ended up fighting them Hmm. um so i don't know if that answers your question but like yeah um yeah i mean it was kind of just like i don't know you know, I guess what's being revealed here is, like, something that had sort of been previewed to them is the thing of, like, there are drow rebelling against the human supremacists in Egglock, but some of them have, like, in their rebellion turned back to, like, loyalty to House I shear and that sort of, like, Nightside Eclipse loyal drow house. And so, like, that's sort of what we're seeing here. Like, that is what we're seeing here is, like, Drow rebels that have joined with, like, ha- that have become death cultists, basically. Um, and yeah, so it is kind of a, a setting reveal in in that sense. Like, uh, showing what the Aishir are up to. Showing that the Aishir are still sort of in play, even though Agalok has, like, uh, enslaved everybody who is inhuman. Um, does that answer your question?
1: I would say so, yeah.
0: They discover the abandoned cottage con described to them not far from the site where they fought the drow death cultists. It appears the killing grounds they fought them on mark the site where they often intercepted enemies that might stumble upon their hideout. Searching the cottage, the group finds a stash of gold pieces. Gent gets their total up to 19,254. Um... Heck says, do you think they might have hidden an underdark entrance in here? What do your bird eyes see? And uh, Jen <laughs> says, offensive. I will investigate or perceive. Why not both? Um, I say, this place seems like it was not a permanent hideout so much as it was a safe house that the drow used on occasion while moving around the area. It's possible they have others, though it's uncertain whether or not those would be nearby or spaced quite far apart. Whatever the case, there's no easy par- path marked from one to another. the other. P- the point was that the cultists could afford to lose one if the patrols from Ashgrain Outpost and the mantle discovered it. At this point, you don't have any further outstanding objectives marked regarding your efforts to gather support for the invasion of our, our Ashgrain Outpost. So, at this time, it comes. Uh, it's, it's up to the party to rendezvous with the Draelic army. They've basically, upon checking in on these... Drow de- death cultists. They've now checked every lead that they have for like potentially recruiting people before the big battle. Um, following the map to the rendezvous point, they reach the mouth of a cavern roughly two hundred feet long and half as wide. They can see that the cavern opens up on the far side, providing a passage through the forest that provides natural cover and a quick route to the vicinity of Ashgrain Outpost. Briefly looking in with your trioptics, you detect no signs of movement. And uh, it's effectively a cave tunnel that would provide a shortcut to where they are going. And uh, Hex says, looks clear. Do we go fast or sneak our way through? And Jet says, seems trap-like. I say we sneak. And uh, Hex says, yeah, I feel that. Connor's eyes should be able to keep us somewhat safe if we move slowly. Uh, and Gent says his bird eyes. <laughs> God. <laughs> um, so, uh, everybody starts sneaking through this cavern. Um, Gent is in a ghillie suit, Hex is in a cloak of the bat, and Connor is just regular because he's in heavy armor, but he's also wearing boots of elven kind. Um,. Jank gets 26 stealth, Hex gets a 28, Connor gets a 17. It's not terrible, it's respectable. As they slowly carefully travel, as they slowly carefully travel into the tunnels, they discover there are numerous sticky spider webs spanning the cavern. They are avoidable, but only if the group moves carefully, so the cavern is effectively difficult terrain. Despite the webs, they detect no spiders. The interior of the cavern remains silent and still, save for their passage through it. And, uh... Connor is desperately trying not to fuck up his stealth while Hex is in full predator mode. Suddenly, a light shines in the cavern. Adjusting their vision... The group realizes that a number of what look like dwarves made of fire are slowly entering the cavern. These are Azers, elemental beings often used as servants, guards, and warriors by those with the power to summon them. They trudge slowly, each with shield and wakazashi in hand, avoiding the webs. Alongside them is a medium-sized monstrous hound. smoke The smoke rising from the hound's snout indicates that it is a hellhound. There are four Azers in the patrol total. And, uh... That is where we broke, but I'm just going to keep going because we don't need to break here. Actually, maybe maybe we should break here. We're at 45 minutes already.
1: All right, unless there's, like, another gigantic combat that we can skim over.
0: I mean, I feel like we can skim over it next time. <laughs> oh, so there is one. All right. There's definitely a fight with these Azur, I think, and that Hellhound.
1: Well, okay, then. Does that mean we're headed over to the RPG Danger Room?
0: Back through the gates.
1: Da, 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 da. Um, once again, right off the top, uh, huge thanks to Lukayo for coming on the show and just telling us all... the best
0: of- episode in ages! Uh,
1: fantastic discussion. I, I absolutely loved... It. I just loved that entire conversation. There was so much great stuff in there. I uh, loved learning about someone else's experience getting into RPGs, the age, the system uh, that introduced them to the world of RPGs. All of that stuff was really wonderful, wonderful to hear. And of course, uh, huge thanks to Lukeo for like giving me that reassurance. I feel so reassured coming away from that conversation, just because like apparently I was I was kind of on point with a lot of my assumptions. Uh, the, the answers to those questions I have. Is it a game? Yes, it is a game. It is, but it does also have therapeutic elements, elements of group therapy, because by design, Luke.io uh, makes these games with the intent of helping people grapple with issues in their lives, issues inside of themselves. In and using RPGs as a platform, so yes, it is group therapy. But is it also uh, witchcraft? Yes, it is. There are elements of spirituality and rich w- uh, witchcraft and paganism uh, thrown in there as well. So th- really, the answer is like all of the above, and uh, even even points of reference that I I mentioned, like Cloud Atlas. Turns out Lukeo loves Cloud Atlas. And uh, that was uh, that did serve to a degree as a, a source of inspiration for the gates. So hey, you know, coming off of that, I'm just I'm jazzed. I feel like I I've got a, a handle on this, and and maybe I should uh, trust my instincts a little more as we go through it because it sounds like like we got a lot right. So um, the. What, there's still a few rules to go over with the gates uh, and I'll try to cover them all now. Uh, I, I'm realizing that I, hadn't even, I haven't even really covered the power section of uh, the gates website. So uh, this might be, it might be two episodes. It might be this episode and next episode to really close the book on the gates. But especially after we had Luke AO on the show, I feel like I got to do my due diligence and, and really you know, not, not skimp on, uh, on going over these rules so that we can do it justice. So next up we're going to be talking about actions in battles. And this is sort of like the first time we're really diving into uh, mechanics, like actual action mechanics of the game. So Crunch. Crunch, exactly. This is, it's time. Let's get crunchy. Um, so questers can take three types of actions. Free, Typical, and Token. Free actions involve summoning your domain key or the center key, as well as returning to battle from your domain or center. So free actions are like essentially uh, returning to the game or removing yourself from the game, removing your, your character uh, from the action to their safe space. Typical actions are anything the quester can do in this world. And then token actions are anything the quester cannot do in this world, but is sourced, which includes support from the community. These are uh, Those terms, sourced and the community, those will be covered in the power section. During a battle, a quester can accomplish one or more typical actions, one token action which can include community support, or a combination of typical actions and one token action which can c- include community support, and then it's the guide's turn to describe how the spirit lands react to the quester's action. This continues until there is a resolution to the battle. So a uh, very sort of familiar dynamic to you know just about any RPG that has crunch like this where the player describes what they want to do, there are certain combinations of actions that they can take within their turn, and then the guide has to describe effectively the consequences of those actions, and how the setting reacts to the Quester's action. If a Quester wants one of their souls to do a combination of typical actions simultaneously in the Spirit Lands, it must be something that they can do in this world, such as talk on the phone while jogging, not something like singing opera while swimming underwater with no breathing apparatus. If the quester wants to do a a combination of typical actions and a token action, such as one of their souls wants to jog, talk on the phone, and summon the dead, the guide could ask the quester to use a community token in addition to the six tokens for, uh, for their ancestry power source because of the difficulty of what the quester is describing. If multiple questers want to take actions at the same time, the group decides what order they will be going in for that battle, determined by consensus through a discussion of power level uh, power sources and levels. Now that I find really interesting because that's telling me that there is no initiative system here. Really uh, you know, when presented with a scenario, it doesn't even necessarily have to be, I guess it does these are, these are it does say here, these are specific to battles. Um, so you're in a battle, but rather than starting a battle and having the guide immediately call for everyone to roll initiative to determine a turn order, the players instead all collectively discuss what turn order they should take. I like that, seems like it it could be pretty effective, and, um, I mean, again I say I kinda need to, I would need to really play the gates myself to get a handle on this, but that to me suggests that there can be an element of strategizing uh, just in how the turn order is decided upon. You know, if somebody has a power that someone else doesn't and that would be better for later in the game, even if the the person with the power that's better for later in the turn is uh, perhaps quicker and would logically go first, the group can decide, okay, and you'll go last in turn order Uh, just so you can employ that at a strategic moment. I could see there being a degree of strategy to that. What do you think of this, Tom? What do you think? I mean, we haven't really talked too much about initiative on this show, but like, what do you think of initiative systems versus something like this? I'm also thinking that like, uh, Forged in the Dark games don't really have an initiative system, do they?
0: Exactly. Teeth doesn't really have an initiative system. We just sort of do things in whatever order but but i do tend to measure even though it's it's not i'm not really told to in in the dark i tend to measure the turnover of like once everybody has had a round say that like often i'll have some sort of consequence come through if uh this is actually a rule i have right there in in ceremony and shadow is basically if there's a threat And if there's a threat in a scene and everybody in the group acts and the threat is still there, then the threat gets to take, like, an offensive action. There's, like, sort of an attrition action of, like, well, you didn't wipe them out yet, so now they get to go. Um, That's the closest I come to having sort of a turn order, though, in Forged in the Dark. Um, When you asked me what I thought of it, I actually was going to say, like, the real thing is that, that that measure of actions with the typical actions and the token actions, to me, that is one of the points of this game that reminds me the most of Noblis, because Noblis also frames their turns in a very similar way, where it's like you get your basic, your like mundane actions that you can do in the real world, and then you have your miraculous actions, and like turns are all about doing having one of each of those you know yeah
1: yeah for sure um well i guess what i wanted to know from you though when i was asking like what do you think of of initiative and initiative systems um i don't know do you do you feel like it's necessary to have initiative it's an inherent part of like dungeons and dragons but as we said you know fortune the dark doesn't use it uh the gates doesn't use it Forged in the Dark, it seems like the, the rule the rule there is just, like, whoever wants to jump in, whoever has an idea, can speak up, and the players can sort of be like, oh, do we want to do that now? Okay, let's do that now. And with the gates, yeah. it's very much like, okay, we all want to do something. Okay, who should go first?
0: I don't know. I find, like, it works with Forge in the Dark well enough, but oftentimes I will... I am kind of wishing that I did have the sense of order of, like, an initiative order. Hmm. So no no it's uh i guess another like, i don't i don't think i don't think every game needs to have a mechanic for initiative the way duns and dragons does but i do like to have some indication of what order things are supposed to go in
1: yeah yeah and uh it does occur to me as we're talking about this too that initiative like it isn't just to determine the order of players turns Uh, and obviously there is a a connection to your character's progression as well. The better, the higher level you are, the more likely you are to go early in combat. But uh, it does occur to me that having an initiative order, a built-in function of that is fairness. Make sure that everybody gets a chance to do something when combat's going on, right? And it seems like that's sort of a, a key point of it for you, too, is, like, not just a turn order, but just making sure that everybody gets a chance to do something before the the action progresses.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's definitely, that's definitely part of it. I think that also there's just, like, for certain players, it's just, like, the absence of initiative is a bit weirder for them, and I prefer to accommodate them, honestly, because I don't, like not having initiative doesn't doesn't like appease anyone in any particular way, whereas having initiative, I am at least providing a function for the people who would prefer that there was an order to the action, you know?
1: Right, right.
0: And, uh,
1: you know, thinking on it too, I guess another, uh, another function of initiative, even though it might not be like, it, it may never have been intended when the rules were written, But a function of initiative can absolutely be uh, making sure to afford an opportunity to maybe your more quiet or shy players to do something, right? Nobody's going to be overlooked if they actually have an initiative order.
0: Yeah, everybody gets a turn. Mm -hmm.
1: And I mean, and the, the gates... In the way the gates does have, still has a turn order that is decided upon by the players, but there's nothing built into it to determine what the turn order is beyond just group discussion, really. So, uh, the last note on uh, the types of actions and using source tokens uh, is just when a token is used, you update your notes, and then it's recommended that. Uh, that the player, the player group has two separate piles of tokens uh, just to indicate when one has been spent and you know, tokens that are left available in the, the pool that can be spent. And then between battles, tokens can be regenerated when a quester visits their domain and shares with the other questers what wisdom they discover uh, when they're trying to regenerate that specific source token. For example, in the middle of a battle, quester has a power level of 2 for their Ancestry power source. They already used the two tokens for actions against a giant skeleton snake that is a, manifest- a manifestation of their sexual fears. They summon their domain key as a free action, return to their floating island domain, where they meditate in front of a giant green sphere of jade that is a larger replica of of the jade marbles they use as ancestry source tokens. Here's another, another one of those things like uh, that I've talked about before with the gates where it's like one foot of this game is always kept in our reality. So here is a player whose character is meditating in front of a giant green sphere of jade and then in the real world, jade marbles are being used as tokens and so there is there is an inherent connection there they described to the other questers for the first time how they now remember that pre-colonization and pre-christianization different sexualities and sexuality itself was revered among their people and that their ancestors wish, wished them only joy and pleasure in this lifetime and not shame and frustration through this sharing they have regenerated all their ancestry source tokens and can return to the battle um i think that this is very interesting and i mean given the type of RPG that The Gates is, where an inherent part of this is like reflecting upon yourself, sharing your fears with your other questers, all of that, I like that there is an actual mechanic to it as well, where like there is a benefit beyond your own therapeutic needs in sharing things that you're learning about yourself, and that benefit in the game is that you get to regenerate your tokens, allowing for more powers and actions. Just a neat intertwining of uh, of sort of the, the functions of the game and the motive behind it. Source tokens can be regenerated during a battle if the quester discovers or makes decisions that gives them more power in that particular source. So let's return to our example of the questers fighting the Skeleton Snake. If the quester had instead looked into the empty sockets of the Operamus and realized that the Skeleton Snake was actually an ancestral spirit that had been possessed by an Oprimus of Greed through the neglect of ancestral veneration offerings and tried to remind the spirit of its ancient pacts with the questers' ancestors in regards to virility in battle, Not only will that quester's ancestry source tokens be regenerated, but they will have leveled up to three tokens in the next visit. So I suppose um, that leveling up uh, comes from it being perhaps a a more intricate revelation that takes place within the battle as opposed to the quester retreating to recharge. Remember to update your power notes whenever you regenerate your tokens and move them from your unavailable pile back to your resource pile. What do you think of all this, Tom? I'm going to talk a bit more about other types of tokens in a second, but uh, I don't know. Where are you at as we're going through this? This is really clicking for me now, thanks to Lukeo's guidance.
0: I mean, yeah, I'd don't, all I don't sort of like, you know, I'd read all this sort of ahead of time. Um, but yeah, this is, I mean, this is where it all gets exciting, right? This is where you get to play the game and everything. Um, is there anything specific you want to get my, my thoughts on? I
1: don't know about specificity, but as I've already remarked before, you know, this is really standing out compared to other RPGs we've discussed in the Danger Room, uh, in that it does have this distinct connection to our reality. Our reality is very much a part of this. The player's realities and who they actually are in the real world, uh, there's a real connection there to the game world. And it's just, it's very interesting to me seeing how there are these mechanics that they they do relate back to the game world and they have to do with self-reflection and, and almost, well, and meditation was mentioned as well. It would be like in D&D if uh, instead of needing a long rest to regain your spell slots, uh, if you tell everybody, In the circle instead you know everybody sitting around the table you talk about how you know what stressed you out this past week and what you learned about yourself as a result of that stress and then once you have shared that with with the party then you regain a spell slot or more spell slots it's just it's a very interesting way of uh, employing a mechanic that is not like numbers or dice based and really has to do with self-reflection and introspection i've never seen anything like that before tom you know in in prawn you just you flop around in a pool and hope the big foam hand doesn't get you
0: yeah you pull a little piece of pool noodle off yourself
1: exactly um so let's talk about community tokens during a battle if equester does not have enough tokens in a particular source for an action they want to take They can add more power to their action from their community tokens. This is counted as part of a token action. Other questers can also add to the token action. The community starts with tokens that equal the amount of all questers. So if the community is at 5, all questers have 5 community tokens each. Uh, Between battles, community tokens can be regenerated when all questers return to the center and share what they learned from the latest battle. During battle, community tokens can be regenerated if there is an act or discovery that furthers all questers bonding together. So that sounds to me just sort of like the expanded version of the way of regenerating one's own like singular tokens. Uh, the community has to come together and share their own revelations and introspective ideas in order to regenerate the community tokens as a group. And then, winning and losing battles. Every time questers lose a battle, the questers total pool of community tokens decreases by a factor of one, i.e. if a group of five questers lose their first battle, and they started with five community tokens each, they now have four community tokens each after the battle. In addition, after the loss, the guide calls them to the center where they undergo a session of healing speech. This results in one token to their self-knowledge source. A session of healing speech usually involves all questers, including the guide, describing how the battle went, their observations and analysis of why the battle was lost, and what they all learned from the experience that can possibly improve the group for the next battle. Um, again, you know, using these, these methods of therapeutic sharing as game mechanics... And just sort of intertwining those ideas still I find it so interesting just interesting to see it laid out like that You know I undergo a session of healing speech where all questers describe how the battle went like perform a post-mortem on Your therapeutic role-playing. What did you learn about yourself as you went through this role-playing scenario? And how can we improve for the next time? It makes it
0: it's also it reminds me of this larger theme of like getting to the big idea because it's similar to the thing where it's like, well, we dealt with the curse, but we didn't deal with the vendetta or we dealt with the vendetta, but we didn't deal with the tyranny. Um, similarly, this has an aspect because this is not just a postmortem on your on your therapeutic role playing experience. This is a postmortem on a situation in which you lost. This is about, we lost the battle and why did we lose the battle? And I find that so much of that is based in the idea of like, okay, but what are we really talking about here is like, I feel like it's, it's not about, or or like when you do this postmortem, you're specifically covering like, what is the real thing here? Like, what is the thing that we failed to grasp that is critical to fighting this enemy that will allow us to defeat it, you know?
1: Yeah, and something that is occurring to me as we go through this and as we've gone through the gates, but now it's finally gelling in my mind, is because the gates does have, like, one foot in the real world and players are playing aspects of their real selves, you know, the mid-soul is just who you are in reality and everything is built out from there. Uh, the result of that is that it it sort of removes the idea of metagaming entirely. It's like metagaming is an inherent part of this. We lost the battle, so let's all just sort of... I wouldn't say necessarily break character, because you're not really breaking character. You're still you, but like, let's break from the action, return to our sanctum, and then talk about like how that went, what we learned, and what we can do better. Uh, it's and uh, likewise, you know, when we were talking before about the group collectively deciding on the the turn order uh, and how they can they can strategize that way, talk about why it would be advantageous for one person to go first or another person to go last. Uh, you don't really get that as much in D and D. You know, it's a, it's almost like a break of character in D and D if somebody's like, "Oh, dude, well you got that great you know power, you should go third in turn order." Like, that's not really the role-playing that is encouraged in something like Dungeons & Dragons. But in this, because who we are in reality factors into the game, it's like that's a, that's a part of it too. I, I think that might actually be one of the big things that I was, that was struggling to wrap my head around, is this idea that the meta nature of the game is also itself part of the game. Um, So when questers win a battle, they can receive a token into one or multiple of their sources at the guide's discretion. In addition, they all receive community tokens equal to the amount of questers in the group. If there are five questers in the group, and they all recently won their first battle, they get another five community tokens to their original amount. Now all questers should have ten community tokens, each in total. If a guide is unsure of whether the group won or lost a battle with an Oprimus, they can consult the Guardians of the Spirit Lands using a divination tool. Um, Crossroads in Possibility, a.k.a. Are you sure you want to do that? When there is a particular action that a quester or a group of questers decide to take that alarms the guide, the guide can teleport the questers to a crossroads impossibility, possibility, where the guide can describe to the questers the consequences of the action and other actions that they can take and the consequences of those. This gives the group a chance to redo their action if needed. That reminds me... Uh, also of uh, forged in the dark a bit, the idea of a player saying like, I think I want to do this, but being informed of the consequences, the potential consequences, if they take that action before it's locked in, right?
0: Yeah. Um, it also, yeah, I don't know. It There's definitely, this is something that I've definitely seen in a lot of role-playing games or like a policy that I've seen where it's like, you know, if, If there is a choice that is very point of no return, it's sort of like, are you sure you want to do that? (laughs) Um, But it is not often, it's not always uh, put in the mechanics. And I don't know, I I think for me, what I'm thinking of is like uh, in World of Darkness, there are certain merits in World of Darkness, like common sense, which you can use... To uh, sort of measure your chances in, like a, 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 a of, or, or, sort of get a little clue from the storyteller, sort of thing. Um, yeah. Soul damage,
1: soul loss, and soul retrieval. This is one of the last sections in the quests section of the Gates rules. Questers sustain damage very rarely, but it is possible. As a quester, you always have only two lives in the spirit lands your undersoul and your upper soul. Your mid soul is never in danger because it is safe within the protective circle of the gates in your own world and can only be harmed in your world. So, you, Tom, the player, the mid soul, you are always safe within the circle. In battle, if you are in your Undersoul form, you are unable to use a power source or community power to protect yourself from an attack, and the other questers are also unable to defend you. Your, uh, your Undersoul will be damaged, and you can no longer use it. You are now essentially down to one life, and you are forced to transform into your Upper Soul. If your Upper Soul also gets damaged, that form will fall immobile in the battlefield, and your Consciousness will revert to your Mid-Soul the other questers must summon your domain key so that your upper soul and undersoul can rejoin you. Otherwise, you will undergo soul loss. If the other questers cannot do that action, then the guide will perform a soul retrieval, which necessitates all questers to return to the center. The group cannot continue their quest when one of their members is undergoing a soul loss. This is very interesting to me because it's almost like it's you know, I guess what I could say is the more of the rules that I read, the more it feels like playing the game is intended to feel whether it is how you actually feel or whether you are sort of pretending to do this, but it should evoke the idea of almost like astral projection. We, the mid souls, sit in the circle, and we project our minds out into the spirit lands, where we can inhabit our undersoul or our upper soul to go on these quests. But then, you know, if the upper soul is immobilized or the undersoul is damaged, uh, our our astrally projected consciousness returns to us, the mid soul, the player sitting in the circle. Um, so yeah, there there is like this this. It seems like there's this degree of reaching your mind out into this other world. Uh, So concluding a quest. A quest is finished when all the opramists that were unveiled during the initiation have been faced and defeated and or when all questers have discovered their true self. The group then goes on a break to rest, reflect, and restore themselves in their world. A new guide can be appointed among them, so that the previous guide can now become a quester, or new members can be added, and the cycle begins anew with another initiation. Um, And I I think this is also pretty cool. I like the idea, uh, we've touched upon it with some other RPGs, but the idea that the, the GM role is traded around, and the GM becomes a player... Uh, it's sort of like the the group in the gates um, The roles within the group are flexible uh, The group gathers they create a list of the different opramus that they're going to face one person acts as the guide to lead them down that list going on the quests to uh, face and defeat the uh that each each soul has brought to the game and then once that list is complete the whole group goes on break. Someone else can assume the mantle of the guide, and the cycle starts anew uh, with you know a new list of operas to face. Like it, it, I think that it's very cool the way this game walks that line of having something that is kind of nebulous. You know, like the just sort of facing your own internal metaphorical demons is a very sort of nebulous concept, but. Everybody picks an internal struggle that is going to be realized in the form of an opramus and that gives a structure to what is effectively a campaign of quests where you've got, you know, five players, everybody is, has revealed an opramus an and once all five oprami have been faced, the campaign, yeah, oprami have been faced, the campaign closes And a new one will begin, but it will be different and it will probably be even a different person guiding the whole thing. Uh, I like that cyclical nature to it. We've talked about the seasons in Teeth, where there's the the season wheel that's filling in as, as the campaign progresses, right? Well, imagine if once that season wheel is completed, I took over as the GM and you became a player. That's sort of, uh, that seems like the kind of cyclical thing that's going on here in the gates. And that's neat. Um, here are some notes on the guide. So, a guide is a being who knows how to do at least one form of divination, has already established their own power sources, and has worked with the gates before in a community like setting. So, seems the recommendation here is you have to play the gates as a player before you can really step into the role of guide. This could mean people who have been questers with another guide, or it could mean equivalent community work and self-work in this world, so running other forms of role-playing I would suppose counts, or perhaps also running forms of you know, group therapy sessions, or meditation, or divination. It is strongly encouraged for the guide to have training in trauma care, emotional first aid, suicide prevention, peer support, somatics, and other healing modalities. We touched on this before. Um, be responsible as a guide. Uh, definitely be responsible. And if uh, I would, I would definitely say, if you do not have things like trauma care, emotional first aid, peer support, um, perhaps you know go into your first uh, first time as guide with with caution and and encourage your players to choose opromi that are not so intense that something like emotional first aid would necessarily come into play the first time around i i guess i did. just you know the guides they, they say it right here the guides have five responsibilities take care of themselves take care of the questers adhere to the protocols of the gates Organize visits and battles in a quest. Commit to the liberation of worlds from the opera mess. So I don't know. Be responsible is what I'm hearing. Just be responsible uh, and and take care with the heavier things that you can encounter as a guide in dealing with you know the players' internal issues and the things the 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 things that uh, that are weighing on them here in the real world, that would be reflected in the game world. GM responsibly. (laughs) So we've got a bit of time left here, and uh, I figure I might as well touch a bit on powers. I don't know if we're going to get through all of the stuff on powers, but uh, it is the last section to the gates that uh, we haven't covered yet. So, in the initiation, the beginning of the game, you must discover your power sources, and begin the first inkling of your community power. Though your power is helpful in battles, the ultimate goal is to use them as clues to find out who you really are in the spirit lands. These are the true names or true forms of your undersoul and upper soul that strengthen you, the quester, and your mid soul or body in your world. It is through healing ourselves, by knowing who we truly are, so we can engage deeper in community, that the operamis will ultimately be defeated. Reflection questions on discovering your power sources. In times of psycho-spiritual crisis... What or who have you turned to for help? What in your life has given you a sense of pride or power? What in your life has helped you become a better person? What in your life has given you a sense of belonging and connection? Undersoul and upper soul power sources are different because of where the power is sourced from. Undersoul power comes from the underworlds and ancestral past lives. Upper soul power comes from the upper worlds and past lives that are unrelated to you by your, your current blood or ancestry. As a general rule, if you have one power for your undersoul form, you cannot have the same power for your upper soul form. This is because the underworld guardians and the upper world guardians are in communication. All the power they give are not gifts to you, but to your communities. The intention is to ensure the communities have a diverse array of power to support them through hardships, and especially against the onslaught of the Oprimus." Uh, what I like about the language being employed here is uh, this, do- this one does make me think of d and where it's like you want to have a balanced party. You don't want everybody to have just the same powers. You want to have a diverse array of power and ability, so that the party collectively can face, you know, any number of different types of obstacles. There are some uh, some exceptions, especially if a group is otherwise completely lacking in that particular power source, and the quester, who would like it for both their undersoul and upper soul forms, has done extensive work already to show they're exceptionally gifted in that power source. If this is the case, the quester would have two source tokens for that power, but they would still be at level one and they would only level up through multiples of two. To understand better how power sources work, consider this six-part classification system. Energy, Ancestry, Land, Tech, Spirit, and Self-Knowledge. Uh, there is a, a big list here. The examples below outline what your experiences in this world, your mid soul, can correspond to through the gates in the spirit lands, the undersoul and the upper soul. In addition, the examples for the undersoul and upper soul are at varying levels and are not directly equivalent to each other or mid soul experience. So rather than go through this full list, Tom, uh, why don't you choose one of those headers? They are energy, ancestry, land, tech, spirit, and self knowledge
0: um man I f- I'm pretty sure I'd even like picked one of these um man I thought that I thought that death was one of them
1: <laughs> uh doesn't look like but destruction is a oh one of ancestry
0: levels. ancestry has the ability to communicate with the dead there it is
1: so ancestry so you oh
0: no spirits
1: <laughs> okay spirits
0: Spirits for my undersoul, because underworld spirits and deities such as gods of death can come to your aid. That kicks ass.
1: That is pretty cool. So your mid soul, you can sense or are blessed by spirits, angels, and not other non-ancestral invisible beings. If you, the player, uh, your mid soul, if you have a real connection to spirituality and uh, and feel that you can commune with. You know, uh, with spirits, angels, or n- other non-ancestral invisible beings, your undersoul could communicate uh, with underworld spirits and deities, such as gods of death, that can come to your aid. Likewise, your upper soul could communicate with spirits and deities like angels who could come to your aid. Um, another example here, let's go with uh, energy. So... Your mid-soul, you manage your time and energy well, or you're able to sense and work with energy fields, whether they are are emotional or magical in nature. Um, Your undersoul could then manipulate emotional energy to your advantage, and your upper soul could potentially throw fireballs from your hands, because the energy is manifesting in a different way like that. There are even smaller subcategories that each of the major ones can be split down to, and they're called specifics. Each specific source that you have can be gauged approximately by a power level uh, which this classification system demarcates into seven sections. The examples below are meant to illustrate what that power source could look like at that particular power level. However, there are many other ways that power source could manifest beyond what is written here. Uh, So levels 1 through 7, let's just do a a real dramatic one. Level 5 is destruction. So, so, uh, ancestry destruction, being able to harm the dead with your will, energy destruction, sapping or harming other beings energy, land destruction, being able to destroy part of the environment with your will, self-knowledge destruction, knowing exactly the weakness of or what is needed to destroy a particular being or thing. That's a handy one. Spirit destruction, harming another being through your own will, and tech destruction, being proficient in using any technology or tool as a weapon, knowing exactly how to destroy a specific technology or tool. Your group can also create your own power source system and levels if if desired, or add more power sources or levels that were not listed above. So this is just a framework you can add to it as you see fit. Um, Well, I might as well polish this off, because we only have a few more sections left. Tokens. Once a quester's specific sources of power are determined, they should all write that down and connect tokens to each of these power sources. For example, if a quester's power notes look like this. Level 1, Detection, Self-Knowledge, can discover when someone is lying to me and was the actual truth. Level 1, Discernment, Spirit, can tell the difference between an illusion and a real being. Level 2, Communication Spirit, knows the communication protocols of angels. Level 1, Discernment Tech, knows how to play any musical instrument on an expert level. That is a very noblest uh, power right there. Then that same quester would have the following tokens. One Clear Marble for a self-knowledge source token. Two Tiny Wooden Blocks for spirit source tokens. They had two spirit-based powers. And then one Tiny Bell for a tech source token. They were one tech power. The questers should also have a half dozen extra clear marbles, wooden blocks, and tiny bells for when they level up their power sources. Obviously those uh, tokens can be swapped out, but the, the main point here is have distinct different types of tokens to indicate the different types of tokens needed for your different powers. Community power is not gauged by levels or specifics, but on the way your group of questers works together. You automatically have community power if you've committed to working with a group of questers, and they're committed to working with you. Every time you complete a battle together, you gain more community power. The total of community power you have is increased by the number of questers in your group. However, if a battle is not completed and someone fails, you lose a little bit of community power. The total of community power you have uh, you each have, is decreased by a factor of one. We we just went over that. When you're facing a uh, manifestation of the Oprimus, or facing a difficult task in the Spirit Lands that is part of your quest, tap into your power sources to specifically deal with the issue, and if needed, add on community power if the task is difficult, or you need support. The tokens that represent community power should look like or evoke the essence of the center's key, and have enough for everyone. So, This must also be decided collectively by the group. Uh, Each quester has to have a pile of community tokens. For example, if there are six questers whose center is a forest glade and the key is a stone rose, then their community tokens should be something like rose quartz pebbles. And there should be at least 36 Rose Quartz Pebbles to start for the questers, because each quester should have 6 pebbles. The guide should have a reserve of about 100 more pebbles for future Victorious Battles, so that the group can gain more community tokens per victory. Uh, Seems like you're gonna need a lot of different tokens for the gates, Uh, and what immediately comes to mind is like, maybe going to a store like Michael's, and you know how you can buy those, like, plastic mesh bags full of, they're essentially little blobs of glass, you know those? Yeah, it seems like like get yourself a really big bag of of glass blobs, uh, especially for the community tokens, because you're going to need a huge supply of them. And then finally, during a visit, the quester should add, uh, should have notes detailing their power, marking off when any of their tokens are used, regenerated, or leveled up. Their tokens should be in three piles: resource, unavailable, and reserve. When a token is used, it moves from resource to unavailable. When a token is regenerated, it moves from unavailable to resource. And when a quester levels up and gains more tokens, they take those tokens from the reserve and add them to the resource pile. If they lose a battle, they take a community token and put it from their resource pile and put it in the reserve pile. So that is how tokens function. Note that there are no dice in this game unless you want to use them as tokens. Actually, you know what? That could be an an elegant way of doing it. I mean, obviously, you'd have to do it in a pinch and uh, work within the framework of the gates because your tokens should relate to your center, should relate to your key. But uh, it seems to me that if you're having trouble finding a hundred of something, maybe you could use like percentile dice to, to track them, uh, and then have a smaller group of physical tokens to represent those. I don't know. A hundred of something might be hard to come by, is just sort of what I'm saying, and I feel like, I feel like there is a way that you could use uh, counters and, and tokens rather than having literally a hundred pebbles in reserve. But, I, I, would, I, would, I should have asked uh, Lukeo about that. <laughs> is this permissible? toothpicks 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 is a good one you know and if the if the center is a forest glade you know two tooth- pieces of wood uh i think would absolutely be uh valid tokens
0: jelly beans
1: jelly beans my center is willy wonka's factory
0: <laughs> bringing it back
1: ah! <laughs> uh but Murdered all those kids but that's that's the gates um all of this, again, we, we've said it before, but the-gates.weebly.com, all of these rules are right there uh, for, for the taking, for you to engage with. Uh, make sure you, you use them responsibly if you're acting as the guide. Make sure you're prepared and, uh, and have a background and really are just interested in, in helping people to work through some stuff on top of running a game. Uh, but this has been a really cool journey. Uh, I'm, again, I'm just so thrilled that we even got Lukayo on here to talk about it. And, uh, it's, I, I, I almost feel like the RPG Danger Room has kind of been building towards something like this, where we've been talking about, you know, party games, we've been talking about, uh, different RPG systems, making fun of Palladium a lot, um, but now we have finally touched upon something that is, it is a role-playing game, but it's like a role-playing game plus. It's a bunch of different things rolled into the framework of an RPG, and uh, I kind of feel like this sits outside of classification a bit. We've referenced *Nobilis* a lot, and I can certainly see the trappings of *Nobilis* here, but *Nobilis* wasn't really about facing your own metaphorical demons. So uh, this is a a very unique system and i'm glad we got to cover it glad you suggested it and and glad again that we got to talk to lucio about it gosh what am i even going to cover next oh man
0: (laughs) yeah this the question is what do you do next because i I haven't got any suggestions for you
1: well i've got a i've got a big long list of potential ones but something tells me it's not going to be uh anything quite on this level
0: tell you what I hear about a lot these days, because I think it just came out, is um, the magical girl forged in the dark game, f- Girl by Moonlight.
1: Oh, interesting. I haven't heard of that one, but I'll have to look into it. Uh, I've been reading about... Here, uh, I can even uh, read the, the article headlines for you. I've been reading about a lot of RPGs from uh, Dicebreaker.com. Uh, A Mandalorian-inspired solo RPG called Notorious explores the edges of a war-torn galaxy in in a new expansion. Uh, The art on this one looks great. Uh, Imagine a Star Wars bounty hunter, but he's a giant mushroom. So maybe that one will be covered uh, in the near future. Um, Blades in the Dark Maker's Deathmatch Island channels Squid Game, Fortnite, and Severance in a nightmarish Battle Royale RPG. So something new from the makers of Blades in the Dark, and it's a big old Deathmatch Island game.
0: That sounds sick.
1: And uh, then also, there is a comedy RPG called Coffee and Chaos that lets your D&D characters run a cafe and uses cutlery instead of dice. So all potential future danger room topics, those all sounded pretty cool. I love the idea, you know, I've been way on to these solo games recently talking about stuff like Tin Helm, but I love the idea of like a Mandalorian style solo RPG where you can play a crazy bounty hunter in a space setting. That could be fun. D&D Cafe, like the idea of that. And, uh, and yeah, Deathmatch Island, that could be a lot of fun too. Uh, I think we've talked about competitive D&D in the past, right? Where it's like D&D Deathmatch. Oh, yeah. uh, I'd be interested to see how Blades in the Dark does it when Blades in the Dark is so unfocused on the combat system. So there we go, some all-potential all ones. And I'll even look into this, uh, this other one, the Magical Girl one. What was it called?
0: Girl by Moonlight. Girl by
1: Moonlight. Yeah, I'll have to check that out.
0: And I think that's it for our episode. So if you want to get in touch with us, see when we post new episodes or follow us, check us out on Facebook, ComparingCampaign on Facebook.com. Or if you want to see our show notes and supplemental materials, check us out on ComparingCampaign.wordpress.com. I think that's everything. Uh, not me.
1: Uh, level up. Get more powers. Face your operamiss. And I'll see you at the gates.
0: Goblin ancestry.